Hey, everybody. Happy Friday or Saturday or Sunday or Monday. I don't know when you're listening to this. We've been publishing a lot of content here at Lions of Liberty, so maybe you're behind. Hopefully you're not. But if you are, we still love you. Just wanted to talk to you for a real quick minute here and uh, let you guys know about something cool we're doing with our friend Gret Glier over at Donor C. Uh, Gret has an awesome, awesome platform for helping people, especially in very poor countries. And we're partnering with Gret. We are uh, donating 10% of our Lions of Liberty Pride contributions um, to his uh, coronavirus efforts. And he is targeting um, helping people in the poorest parts of the uh, of the world to get, you know, even simple things like hand sanitizer and cleaning supplies and uh, being able to help them out through this very tough time. Um, you know, coronavirus is tough enough on us uh, in the first world here, as they say, uh, just navigating uh, through it and learning the new normal. In poorer countries, it is much, much worse. And if we can just do a little bit to help, um, it'll go a long way. And of course, with Donor C, you get to see uh, the impact that your donations have. You can follow it along and get updated videos. So check out more on this initiative at DonorC.com slash coronavirus. And you can join the Lions of Liberty Pride uh, by going to Patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty and check out everything we offer there with the bonus content and Perks and merchandise and all that good stuff. Let's get to the show. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. What is Felony Friday? Felony Friday is a show where every single week we're going to do a deep dive and we're going to examine and expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Now, if this is your first time listening to Felony Friday, your first time listening to any of the shows we have here on Lions of Liberty, Sit back, relax, enjoy the show, put your feet up. If you're driving, please don't put your feet up. But if you've been back several times, if this is a regular habit of listening, why haven't you subscribed? Or maybe you have subscribed. Thank you if you subscribed. But if you haven't, please do so. Whatever podcasting app you're listening on, please just scroll up to the top there, punch that subscribe button, and uh, you'll get every single episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast and of Felony Friday delivered to your little listening device. And also, if you really enjoy what you're hearing here, please think about uh, giving us a, a five-star rating and a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, especially if you listen there, because it helps with the algorithms and all that crazy stuff. Without further ado, let's get rolling with today's show. All right, my guest today on Felony Friday is Judge Jim Gray. Judge Gray is an American jurist and a writer. He received his undergraduate degree from UCLA and his JD from USC. Uh, Judge Gray was named to the Santa Ana Municipal Court in 1983 by the governor, who then appointed him to the Orange County Superior Court in 1989. Back in 2012, Judge Gray was the Libertarian Party vice presidential nominee 
as well as the party's 2004 candidate for the U.S. Senate in California. He's the author of multiple books, including Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed. He's also written a play, and he's a longtime outspoken critic of American drug laws. Uh, of course, Judge Gray has just recently announced that he's seeking the Libertarian nomination for president of the U.S., and uh, he's here with us today. Judge Gray, welcome to Felony Friday. John, thank you. It's just a pleasure to be with good people. Yeah, well, it's great to have you on the show, and I know this is this is fresh with you uh, in the past just couple weeks here, jumping in to the Libertarian Party race, and I want to talk about all of that. I want to talk about your policy and the reasons why you're doing that, what motivated you to do it. But before we get to those questions, let's kind of start at the beginning. What motivated you? What uh, piqued your interest to first become interested in the in the ideas of liberty? What made you a, a libertarian? John, I, I can trace this back. Uh, I've always been somewhat independent, <laughs> ask a lot of people. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I care about people. I'm a pragmatist. I like to adopt programs that work. And uh, if you look at it, what works really the best is liberty, uh, is freedom, is the ability to live your life as you wish. Uh, I've always been kind of, oh, you can't tell me that I can't uh, do this or do that. Of course, I believe in laws. I believe in responsibility. As a judge, I was in the responsibility business. But uh, I, as you said, uh, just using my own background, I was a Navy JAG attorney, criminal defense attorney. I was a federal prosecutor in Los Angeles. I'd been on the bench for nine years, seeing in my own courtroom us churning low-level drug offenders through the system for no good purpose, frequently ruining people's lives, taking up enormous resources that could have been used to prosecute, investigate robbery, rape, and murder. So on April the 8th, 1992, I held a press conference as a sitting judge. Judges do not do that. And I told anyone that would listen that our nation's drug policy, drug prohibition had failed us. We should come up with something and anything would be better than what we're doing, which is true. I also guaranteed anyone who would listen that by the year 2000, we in our country will have a materially different drug policy. Uh, and boy, was I wrong about that. We're now in 2020 and in many ways, we're much worse off today, although we're making some progress. But uh, then I was a Republican at the time. I saw that the Republican Party was leaving me. And with the passage of the so-called Patriot Act, which was a direct frontal assault on our civil liberties, I could not be a part of any group that would condone, much less assist that attack. And I still remember the transition. <laughs> John, it took me 13 seconds to really believe, hey, I'm a libertarian. I've been very comfortable with this since. I'll be a libertarian for life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was proud to be the standard bearer with Governor Gary Johnson uh, as I ran for vice president in 2012. Um, speaking of your, you know, your experience as a judge and everything you've accomplished, something that I came across in your background that was really interesting that I deny uh, it. I deny it completely. I'm sure it didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, that honestly, I've never heard of something like this before. Maybe it's more common than I know of. Um, but the peer court experience, which I believe is something um, you were instrumental in uh, creating, can you tell us? sort of what initiated you to do that and explain what it is. Well, um, the first thing, we need mentors for our, for our students, for our children. We need to show them that uh, they're responsible for their actions. And so I just saw that there are a lot of young people in juvenile hall facing juvenile challenges and, and charges, uh, which were ruining their lives as well. Hey, let's put up a diversion program, which means, okay, they'll plead guilty in effect to these offenses. And they're not serious offenses, but sometimes, you know, 
someone mouths off at my girlfriend and I hit him in the mouth sort of thing, that could still be nonviolent in a sense. And so we took a program and, and I did start it uh, with the probation office, with the Department of Education, with the uh, uh, some a volunteer organization. And now we have 14 high schools in, in Orange County, where I live in California, where we take real juvenile cases to the high schools. The, the subject is there. One or more parents has to be there. And then the high school students as jurors will question the subject, question the parents. Once they have enough information about the offense, their background, et cetera, they will retire, make a recommended sentence to a real judge, who will then impose a sentence, usually modifying it downward, because sometimes these high school jurors can be pretty tough dudes. And then if the subject completes the, the sentence within four months, the charges are dismissed. They don't have a record. And the benefit of that is that, first of all, a lot of parents come to the realization that your kids don't expect you to be their friend. They expect you to be their parent, and that's different. Uh, what do you mean you don't know where your 12-year-old daughter is at 3 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday? You know, that sort of thing. Uh, to the subject, what do you mean? Are you ashamed of your friends? You don't introduce your friends to your parents? Get into things like this. Uh, oh, you, were, you must be an alcoholic. You were drinking mouthwash? I mean, they're, they're pretty perceptive people. So then you not only help that subject and his or her parents, but also the jurors. There are six to eight jurors there, and they think, gee, you know, I nearly not, don't want to ditch class and smoke marijuana either. That's not going to further what I want to be. Uh, I will ask them, by the way, because judges can ask them as well, uh, how old are you, John? Uh, I'm 16. Let me ask you a really hard question, and you kind of shudder back. How old are you going to be 10 years from now? Only one time did the subject get that question wrong. But okay, so I'll be 26. John, what do you want your life to look like when you're 26 years old? Oh, I want to be this. I want to. Well, don't you understand that if you shoplift at Target, do you think I, as an employer, want to have a shoplifter in, hired in my in my store? What do you think about that? You know, so they start realizing, hey, we all know as adults, 10 years is going to go by really quickly. But when you're 16, it's an eternity. So not only you get that across to the subject, but also to the jurors. And we'll have another 50 people, high school students sitting in the audience who are starting to think, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I, I asked them a question. Um, you show me your... you. Close your eyes for a minute, literally, and think of three close friends that you have. Okay. Got them. You don't have to tell me who they are. Yes. Are they going to be successful 10 years from now? Well, not, not really. Well, don't you realize that if you hang out with people that ditch school, smoke marijuana, talk back to their teachers, you're probably going to do the same thing. But if you hang out with young people that are rolling up their sleeves, doing a good job, really learning and getting an education, you're probably going to do the same. So I'll tell you, and this is really important, I think, for kids to understand, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. So you get into things like that. And I'm proud of it. It's now going on without me. I learned in Peace Corps training uh, two things, well, among others. One is that, pro that no one will change unless they have what they call a felt need. That is, you have to feel that this change is necessary from within. They may not be right. I could have planted the seed, but they have to feel it from within. Right. The second is that a program will not be successful unless it goes on without you. So I haven't been involved in our peer court now for quite a few years. It's thriving. So it's a successful program. That's and awesome. I took the, lessons, took the lessons I learned from that and, and wrote a musical called Americans All. Uh, you can hear some of the music on JudgeJimGray.com. Just click on Americans All. And if you, any of our viewers or listeners uh, have access to student uh, uh, drama departments or music departments mm -hmm. and you'd like to perform my musical, I'll give it without royalties. That's awesome. So has this expanded? Are there any other states doing something similar to this? Yes. Or? 
Yes, there are. Uh, I learned it from Los Angeles, but there they had what they called um, teen court, and there they actually ruled on guilt or innocence, where then you get attorneys and, and you kind of lose the emphasis. So I changed it for us. But there are various teen courts around the country. Okay. Hey, interesting concept. I was not familiar with it. So staying on... Uh, one, one more, John. Sure, if you go sure. to judgejimgray.com, you'll actually see a video explaining what a peer court is, and uh, it's there. Talk of the probation officer, I'm there, etc. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in starting a peer court, call the Constitutional Rights Foundation in Orange County, and they'll uh, give you the information. I'm proud That's of cool. it. So staying on the criminal justice system, but turning our attention to the prison system. Um, right now, of course, with uh, COVID-19, it's it's fallen into chaos. A lot of prisons where, you know, they've really stopped testing people in some prisons, assuming that everyone is, everyone's infected. Um, there's prisons in in Ohio where it just it's run through the uh, you know the entire system. Um, and this is, I mean, there's been problems in the prison system, obviously, well before COVID nineteen, but it's kind of exposed uh, the the house of cards that it is, and a lot of prisoners are getting compassionate release because they can't be protected. Um, just looking at the system as a whole right now, I just kind of get like to get your perspective on the state of the current system, some of the things you see wrong with it, and maybe some ways that it could be reformed to uh, actually work as a to correct behavior rather than just uh, really be 100% punitive and really uh, just demoralizing conditions. How many hours do we have? <laughs> Not there, enough. There are many things wrong with the criminal justice system, and I've been in pretty much in it my professional life. Uh, I was a federal prosecutor, like I said, and in the Greg Sharp administration, we will issue orders to our U.S. attorneys and our prosecutors. Prosecutors are meant to do the right thing for the right reason every time. Sometimes that's modify the sentence. Sometimes that's not prosecuted anyone at all. Of course, uh, if somebody should be prosecuted, uh, we're the ones to do that because we're, again, in the responsibility business. But, John, we took a political phrase, get tough on crime, and turned it into a policy. And the United States of America, this is a sobering statistic, the United States of America has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. There was a senator from uh, Virginia, Jim Webb, who faced with those statistics, said, and I quote him a lot, either we're the most criminally oriented people in the world, or we're doing something wrong. Which do you think it is? So, Then I I say in in my campaign and elsewhere, we should reserve our prison space for people we're afraid of, not people we're mad at. And and if you just understand that, Mm -hmm. that uh, putting people in jail, I would do it as a judge. Uh, You'd put them in jail for two or three days, maybe 10, to get their attention. And I'm going to expect you to to then get your attention. I put in the first drug court in the country, by the way, back within six months of my appointment to the municipal court. That was with regard to alcohol-related offenses. So I told him, and I wasn't kidding, if you even eat rum cake and I find out about it, I'll put you in jail. And so I'd get their attention, and then they start seeing how better their life would be without being involved with alcohol, and then they would go on. But uh, so jail is important. Prison is important. Uh, There are some people that should simply, I'm sorry to say it, be removed from society. I've seen them. They see all of us as their lawful prey. And uh, if you let them out, they're going to go and and do something else bad. So I'm sorry to say that that's necessary. But we have tens and tens of thousands of people in prison today that should not be there, simply should not be there. We have also 
probably a hundred thousand people in jail today awaiting their sent awaiting their their trial who shouldn't be there either they if they're poor they can't afford bail so they stay in jail or they cop a plea they take a plea even if they really have defenses and really and sometimes we're flat out, flat out innocent because i've got to get out of jail now you'll give me credit for time served i can get out today so i'll plead guilty so i can go back to my job you know they're otherwise they're going to lose their job which brings other enormous problems if you have money, you can make that bail. So it's an unfair system. So that needs to be changed. We libertarians stand for that. And, and I've worked for that. Um, then I'll go with the drug policy issue. And it makes as much sense to me to put that gifted actor, Robert Downey Jr. You, I assume, know him. Uh, he's right. making good good movies, but he's always had that lifelong heroin problem. And he's going to have to be careful. He has those cravings. But it makes as much sense to me to put Robert Downey Jr. in jail for his heroin problem as it would have Betty Ford in jail for her alcohol problem. Of course, that was the wife of President Gerald Ford and a self-acknowledged alcoholic. But it's the same thing, isn't it? It's a yes. medical issue. And bring them closer to medical professionals that can help them instead of rendering them automatic criminals and pushing them farther away. But if Robert Downey Jr., Betty Ford, you or I drive a motor vehicle impaired by, you name it, any of these mind-altering, sometimes addicting substances, methamphetamine, scares me, uh, heroin, alcohol, which is my drug of choice, that's a crime. Focus on this. What's the difference? And the difference is now by my actions, I'm putting your safety at risk, legitimate criminal justice function. And then my libertarian bent, and I believe this before I became a libertarian in 2002, but my libertarian bent tells me that the government has as much right to control what I as an adult put into my body as it does what I put into my mind. It's none of their business. So just just to to dig a little deeper there, to play devil's advocate on that. So what would be, what's your general stance on DUIs as that, you know, there's the, the, the line that you cross 0.08, maybe it's different state to state. I think most are 0.08. Um, should there be DUI checkpoints? I mean, I understand what you're saying that you're putting others at risk, but someone could argue you're putting others at risk and you are if you're driving your car and you're overly tired. Um, so, so what's the? Could you speak to that a little bit? Yes, um, and that's a that's a delicate balance, safety as opposed to liberty. Uh, I remember Ben Franklin saying, of course, that uh, he who would give up a little bit of his freedom for a little more security deserves neither. And I I, I go along with that. Particularly, look at today's coronavirus, where people are just like sheep. Just do. the president of the United States does not have the authority to order businesses to close or to have us stay in home. He simply does not. Uh, it's it's a state issue. Try the Tenth Amendment. Sometimes, you know, any any power not delegated by the Constitution to the federal government is reserved for the states and what and who the people. Yes, that's us. So so it is a problem. Uh, if you're going to have, at least in California, one of these checkpoints, you have to advertise it in advance, which is good in one ways. But then if you're going to be really driving under the influence, you're going to avoid that. It's only the people that aren't that are really going to be into that problem. So it's abused. It's overdone. Uh, I think in, in a lot of ways, 0.08 or higher, which is in the state of California, is kind of a cop out because there are people who regretfully they've had enough alcohol in their past. But uh, they're pretty much sober at the at uh, 0.08. But uh, it, it's a problem. It, it's it's a serious thing. John, I still remember. I was on the bench, and there was a voluntary manslaughter conviction where a mother had lost her son to a drunk driver, and so she sued the son. I mean, excuse me, sued the driver who had no very little insurance, no money. So I'm I'm there in my courtroom, 
what do you do? And all I could think of to do, I got off the bench and I gave her a hug and said, I'm sorry. But why doesn't someone do something? Well, who better than a municipal court judge in a conservative county? So I put in the first drug court to, because what we did at the time and, and in large ways still do, we'll take somebody that's an alcoholic. If you're not an alcoholic, they'll pretty much get the message one time, the DUI conviction, and that's eh, pretty much going to get your attention and you're not going to do that anymore. But if you're an alcoholic, oh, it doesn't apply to me. I'm going to take one drink, I'll take seven drinks, and then I'll drive again and I'll kill somebody else. So we would screen out the alcoholics because they're the high risk problem drinkers, I called it. And then we would put them on a separate program that we instituted to take them off alcohol. So now, not only you give their lives back, but you also save others from that carnage. So I'm proud of that. I've received numbers of letters. One of them I still remember, I still have and treasure. Dear Judge Gray, I was gonna divorce my husband because he'd get drunk, he'd hit me, he was irresponsible with our children. But now that he's off alcohol, you've given me my husband back. Thank you, you know, that sort of thing. So judges are the biggest social workers really in the country. And we can get people's attention, mental health issues, you know, Putting, putting people that are mentally disabled in jail just exacerbates the problem, and it's the most expensive outcome. So you start filtering these people out, and then again, you talk to people and who in juvenile court or otherwise, tell me your friends, I'll show you your future. You know, you really can help people doing that. And I have been. I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So just uh, one more question on, uh, on drug policy, and then I want to move into the, the presidential race and some more uh, mainstream, well, it's all mainstream, but some, some issues outside of uh, the criminal way, justice. Let, arena. let me interrupt you again, because I told you that I held the press conference on April the 8th, 1992. And I always remember the date because I had a civil calendar. I had a mm-hmm. law in motion calendar on a Wednesday. So I would study, usually prepare on Wednesday morning and then have the law in motion calendar in the afternoon. So this time I would, in effect, do my law in motion the night before, and I was ready on April the 1st. I thought to myself, no, probably not a good idea to do this on April Fool's Day. So I waited a week, and that's how I always remember that it was April the 8th. That's a good That's good planning. <laughs> um, so around around drug legalization, and you've, you've run as vice president before, so I'm sure you're very familiar with these questions. And if you get the nomination, I'm sure when you get on a CNN town hall or Fox News or whatever it would be, You'll get the same questions. You'll get somebody standing up in the audience saying that, you know, their one of their loved ones has overdosed or died, um, which which is terrible. I'm not diminishing that. Um, so, what is your stance on drug legalization? And I'm, I'm assuming it's it's for you know, laxing it at least laxing the regulations. How would you defend a question with somebody um, who is fearful? of what drug legalization would do potentially exposing their loved ones to uh, you know, dangerous drugs and, and things like that? Sure. First of all, I wouldn't legalize anything. Um, and I don't mean to be too picky, but with regard to language, it matters. And here, if you think a legalized drug, think aspirin. Your 12-year-old sister could buy as much as she wants to, go to her local pharmacy, buy it by the case, buy a generic, buy name brands, no age restrictions, advertised on the open market, no, I don't, I don't know anyone that wants marijuana or any other drug to be that way. Mm-hmm. So what I say is, in fact, if you're on the, on the stump, you say, you want to legalize marijuana? Oh, no, I don't, I don't want that to be a, a stepping stone for my daughter to get hooked on heroin and the rest. But he said, hey, would you like to regulate marijuana like wine? Sure. Mm-hmm. So you have regulate, strictly regulated and controlled. And that's what we do. It's not just false advertising. That really is the more appropriate thing. I would take away marijuana 
course, I would I would re repeal the Controlled Substances Act if I could. And I certainly immediately, I would, as the president, have this authority. I would remove marijuana from the schedules, allow each state to decide how best to serve and protect its people, um, allow banks for marijuana. It's, that's a little off the subject here, but a lot of important. But when you're talking to people, recognize this. There's no question that these mind-altering, sometimes addicting drugs can be harmful. No one wants being being addicted to heroin, using heroin is not a good thing. So we want to bring those people closer to medical professionals, et cetera. We've covered that. But 10% of all the drug problems in our country are drug-related, about 10%. 90% are drug money-related. So when you're saying to a loved one, I don't want my daughter and my, my husband to overdose, that's mostly an the problem with, with drug purity. There's no testing in the illegal market. You don't know what you're putting into your body. This whole fentanyl thing, which is tragic, this fentanyl thing is caused by drug prohibition. You don't, of these countries that have regulated and controlled it, like Portugal and Holland, they don't have any fentanyl there. That's an artificial heroin. But they, they have truth and labeling, they have advertising, they have purity. So all of those things matter. Drug prohibition would kill your person, your loved one, because you don't know what you're putting into your body. When we came to our senses, John, and finally repealed alcohol prohibition with the 21st Amendment, the emergency room visits for white lightning, the, the impurities in the alcohol, went away overnight. Mm -hmm. They were gone. Most of the overdoses are because of unknown strength and unknown purity. Now, let me give you my experience as well, which pushed me into holding that press conference in 1992. I was on the bench uh, and at two different times, I was sentencing young men for being under the influence of methamphetamine, uh, different times, different occasions. But in California and pretty much every other jurisdiction, before you enter a plea of guilty, you have to give us what we call a factual basis. Namely, you have to put in your own words why you're guilty of the offense, which is a good thing. So each time these young men were telling me, Your Honor, my drug of choice is marijuana. And I would buy my marijuana from the same supplier. Once, though, unbeknownst to me, he sold me some marijuana laced with methamphetamines. I smoked it a few times and got hooked. And I still remember thinking, and you should understand this, too. Look, we all know smoking cigarettes is hazardous to your health. But at least if you go down to your local mini mart and buy a pack of Marlboros, you're going to know it's not laced with methamphetamine. That's a drug prohibition problem. So let's regulate it and control it. Tax it, by the way. Take a whole lot of money away from Mexican mafia juvenile street gangs, motorcycle, all these other thugs, and use it to pay our teachers, pay our firefighters, and fix our highways. I mean, how hard can this be and get regulated control? Mm -hmm. In California, for decades, marijuana has been the largest cash crop. Second, second is grapes, by the way, if you care, with all the wine industry. So somebody's going to make it, somebody's going to grow it, somebody's going to distribute it, and people are going to use it. So let's regulate it and control it. Yes, tax it a little bit, although they tax it much too much. Uh, and bring it under control and hold people accountable for their actions. That's a long-winded answer. It's a complicated subject. I care about people. I want to reduce the harms that will be caused by these drugs in our communities and drug regulation and control and then medicalization as well will do exactly that. Let's take a real quick break here. I want to tell you guys about an awesome libertarian podcast. I know you guys think that Lines of Liberty is the only libertarian podcast out there, and we are great. I mean, it's awesome. What we do here at Lines of Liberty. But there's other good ones too. In fact, there's a great one called Good Morning Liberty. It's hosted by our friends, Nate and Charlie, and myself and Brian. We were on the show a couple weeks ago, and Mark was on after that separately. Highly recommend going back and, and checking out those episodes. What the host Nate and Charlie are trying to do 
is they've taken on the onus of trying to change people's minds of how people view libertarians. And they're doing this by leading with a message of compassion first. They're looking at the way in which policies impact people and using the principles of liberty to provide compassionate solutions. I know it's amazing, right? So much more effective than just typing loudly and screaming to yourself and commenting on Facebook statuses. But they're actually giving you tangible ways to talk to other human beings about how liberty is compassion. Amazing, right? So Nate and Charlie are two great guys, like I said. I think I said that at the beginning. They have a, uh, a background in healthcare. They actually own a healthcare IT company. So at times like this and times of crisis uh, that we have in this country right now, a great podcast to tap into to get their perspective. You can check it out five days per week. So if you need that uh, daily hit of liberty, please check out Nate and Charlie over at Good Morning Liberty. Of course, you can find it on all the regular podcatching apps, or you can just go to lol.gmlpodcast.com. Good Morning Liberty. Check it out. I, I think that's a great answer. And honestly, that's something, it's it's so important that a libertarian candidate can answer that in a uh, intelligent way and, and make it so clear that the problem is the prohibition. And I've just seen so many times that, um, it's 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 not answered correctly. So that was a great answer. Um, I'm curious because it's it's clear that you're you're obviously passionate about the, these these ideas. You're um, you know you've run for office before. What took you so long to jump into the race this time? Bluntly, um, I was supporting Governor Lincoln Chafee. Uh, he is he had his strengths and his weaknesses. I guess like we all do. It really grabbed me. In fact. John, I'm in, I'm in competition with you. Uh, I have my own podcast. It's on Voice America Network, uh, Variety Channel. It's called All Rise, The Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. And I've interviewed on that Lincoln Chafee. I've interviewed Nick Sarwark, of course, the chair of the Libertarian Party, recently Ben Fishman. I've interviewed uh, Jacob Hornberger, uh, Joe Jorgensen, and uh, Ken Armstrong. So I've interviewed all these people. Uh, but I also then interviewed Lincoln Chafee. And he just he was the only, think of this, he was the only Republican U.S. Senator to vote against putting troops into Iraq. That gives him a great, great deal of credence in my book. Uh, he understands budget deficits and how, how really threatening those are. So, you know, he, he understands these things. So I was supporting him. It was only uh, two week, two and a half weeks ago, I guess, that I was on, it was on a Saturday, was on a radio, excuse me, a telephone conference call with him and his staff he said, in two hours, I'm going to announce to the Wyoming LP delegation that I'm withdrawing from the race. And I said, Governor, please, it's a matter of loyalty to the party, loyalty to the country. We need someone that has your background. You know, he was a former U.S. senator, former governor, former mayor. He had an administrative background and he understood the issues. Please don't do this. I'll get you some support, etc. Came back in a very flat voice saying, Judge, he said it twice, Judge, I have made my decision. So he hung up, and then his staff asked me if I would take his place. I hadn't thought about it at all. Uh, I said, no, it's not in the cards. And they turned the tables on me, John. They said, Judge, as a matter of loyalty to your party and loyalty to the country, please step in. We need someone who has your background to be able to get our message out. So I said, okay, look, give me two or three days. I'll think about it. I'll call various people, talk to my LP friends around the country. And I did. And uh, they were all encouraging. They said, we need somebody. This is an enormous opportunity for the Libertarian Party. People don't want to vote for Trump or for Biden. They need a third voice, somebody that's pretty much institution, 
You know, he's not going to scare people. We'll be able to spread the culture of libertarians. We'll make libertarianism accessible to the people all around the country. And you're in. In fact, Mark uh, Rutherford from Indiana uh, told me just that fall that he would endorse me if I would. So finally, I was talking to Larry Sharp, who's in my view, a lot of ways, Mr. Libertarian. Uh, he's from New York. And he was saying, Judge, you've got to do this. So I said, all right, Sharp, put, put your money where your mouth is. If you'll run as my running mate, I will do it. And his answer was, quote, yes, yes, yes. So now what am I supposed to do? So I came in late, but uh, we have the best team. Of course, they're, they're nominated independently, but we're running as a team. And uh, we're going to really make an impact on this, on this race, on our party, and more importantly, on our country. And speaking of the, the country, I mean, you've jumped into a race during unprecedented times with this COVID-19 crisis. Um, so much, as you just uh, talked about, so much uh, polarization between the Republicans and Democrats, between just people in general. It seems like everyone's outraged all the time about everything that's going on. At a time like this, with the COVID-19 crisis, you're running for president. What should libertarians do what should somebody like yourself do who's running for president to in order to you know how republicans democrats always say never let a crisis go to go to waste right so how can and they're doing that as a way to expand government yes how can you or libertarians in general use this crisis to expose government to uh you know to really spread the message of liberty well first of all the federal government and the state governments failed us. They didn't have a plan. And part of the part of the obligations of government is to plan for emergencies. In fact, I told you I interviewed uh, Ken Armstrong. Uh, he's running against me for the nomination, but he's still a really good man. He was for the Los Angeles Port Authority in charge for in several years of emergency preparation. And so he had things in plan. If the emergency happens, we don't know what, when, where. We don't know if it's an earthquake or a hurricane, but they're going to happen or a pandemic. So you have to plan in advance. He did. They had an earthquake in the Port Authority in Los Angeles about three years thereafter, and his plan worked. He was ready. So if you have to start making your plans at the time of the disaster, it's too late. So they failed us in that. And then what they did, John, is overdid. They at politicians, you'll be shocked at this, politicians responded politically. Oh, if I'm a governor, if I'm a mayor, I'm going to overdo to make sure that you stay healthy. So if I'm successful, even though I shut down the, the economy, even though I destroyed tens of millions of jobs, that's a harm too, by the way. I've, I've closed hundreds of thousands of businesses, many of which will never reopen. That's a harm too, by the way. It causes suicides, causes depression, causes domestic violence. All of that as well as the economic threat. So but I overdo it so that if I'm successful, John, and you don't get sick, you're healthy. I'm a hero. Oh, it worked. Or if you do get sick, okay, you can't blame me because I did everything I could. In the meantime, had libertarians been there, of course we're concerned. Of course we want to have people be healthy and we don't want to lose people. But it's a balance. You have to include jobs. You have to include businesses in the equation. I'm going to go, as soon as we're done here, to a bank. We're going to open our bank account for the campaign. And I went there before and, and we made preliminary arrangements. So this bank says, as a sign on the outside, no one allowed in this bank unless you're wearing a mask. Good. There are other companies that say, we have a filtration system in our 
clothing store. So come in. We're going to keep spacing. We're going to have our, our employees will wear gloves and masks. So then, if I'm 80 years old and I have pneumonia, I'm not going. But you treat adults as adults, and adults can make the decision as to whether I'm going to go or not. Then take it this way. <laughs> this politics is nuts. It's crazy because, okay, I have a small clothing store, for example, and or I have a hardware store. And I'm close as not being an indispensable business. But you can always go to Costco or Home Depot or some other box store because they are indispensable. So you can get your groceries and you can get your clothing and you can get your hardware there. So they're closing me down and then helping my competitor. It's mm -hmm. arbitrary. Libertarians are not arbitrary. There's going to be harms. We're going to do a balance. We're going to act as adults. And I believe, by the way, that spacing should be enforced. Why? Because conceptually, if I have the coronavirus or I have some other disease, if I cough in your presence within six feet, that's an assault. An assault is a crime. I think we have a, a means to enforce six, six feet apart, unless, of course, you're married or that sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, but otherwise, let adults act as adults. And if you treat adults as adults, they'll start acting that way. The idea, <laughs> the governor of Michigan, you probably heard this, allowed, allowed indeed, you can go out in a canoe, you can go out on a kayak, but not a motorboat. Really? I mean, what, what's going on here? And then what does government do? They respond by one of the things they do best, which is they spend money. They throw money at problems. And of course, the federal government now is adding to the deficit. What, $2.6 trillion? You don't think that's a harm? John, I am proud to say six days ago, I became a grandfather. And two days yeah, ago, congratulations. Time, thank you. For the first time two days ago, I was able to see my little grandson, Hudson, mm -hmm. and hold him. Hudson is bankrupt. This is a wrong that we are inflicting upon our children and our grandchildren. Libertarians will tell you the truth. Yes, libertarians are party of principle, but we need people to understand libertarians are also a party of reality. Mm -hmm. We will treat you like adults. We will tell you the truth. We will plan in advance, and then we will get out of your way because government got in the way of the private sector who was already to start doing some testing, already putting up some masks or ventilators or whatever. You can't do, make those masks yet because you don't have a license, is the government's response. You can't test this because the FDA hasn't approved this yet. Give us another three months or whatever. The government gets in the way. My philosophy is my practicality. It's what works. Milton Friedman, my hero, now I'm getting excited, but Milton Friedman, my hero, would be a positive revolution in our country if we would listen to his words, which were, we should judge our programs by their results, not their good intentions. Mm -hmm. Minimum wage, oh, good intention, oh, poor baby, you know, we'll tell, no, it will take away your job. Some people are not worth $10 an hour yet. I mean, all of that sort of stuff. The government gets in the way when you have a crisis. The, the private sector is geared to solve problems. It's just a different approach. And libertarians have the right message and the right approach. So, so I, I agree with you there. Um, the problem libertarians have and libertarian party has is probably if most Americans heard you heard that, you know, your, your talk right there, they would say, yeah, I agree. The problem is they're not hearing it. You can't get in debates. You can't get as much media as the other two parties. How would you try to elevate or how would you elevate your your message a uh, judge jim gray uh, and larry sharp ticket what would you guys do differently in order to really have an impact on this election well two things 
The first is we are into social media. Not me, by the way. I tell people I'm not a techie. Uh, you want to know my techie ability? I'm almost ready to grapple with a Y2K problem. Not quite, but I think I'm almost there. But Larry Sharp is brilliant, and we have numbers of people on our campaign. We put we put people together on a campaign within three weeks. It's unbelievable what we have. But uh, at any rate, so social media is one way. The other way is, look, we know full well, John, everyone knows, we'll never have the tens of millions of dollars and the media exposure to be competitive in the large states. No matter what happens, the Democrats are going to be elected in California. Biden will win in California. Trump will win in Texas. New York will go to Biden. And we're not going to try to put any any funds there. The New York Times wants to interview me, ABC News, of course. What we're going to do is select about five small states, independent states. I'm not sure which ones yet, but, uh, you know, New Hampshire or Montana or one of the Dakotas or maybe Utah, Alaska. I don't know. We're going to put our resources there. Larry and I will go to town hall meetings when they're opened again and we'll meet people in grocery stores and we'll go to Kiwanis meetings and we'll look at them and say, your vote will make history. Because if we win two or three small states, it could very well mean that neither Biden nor Trump will get a majority of electoral college votes. It will go to Congress. And I assure you, no member of Congress that's a Republican is going to vote for Biden ever. And no Democrat in Congress is going to vote for Trump ever. But they're restricted by the Constitution to the top three candidates. We would win the election. We would be the compromise candidate. And then, John, we will do what America wants, which is... We'll put in a coalition government, kind of like Abraham Lincoln's team of rivals. Yes, of course, libertarians and independents, but also Republicans and Democrats, as long as they agree with our philosophy of financial responsibility, responsibility at all levels of society, live and let live, don't no, tread on me, no, don't tread on anybody, that sort of thing, and we will stop this polarization. Okay, we have problems with the Republicans, problems with the Democrats. You're a Republican, you're a Democrat. Go talk to your colleagues. Let's get on board. Let's figure out the meritorious way of doing this. And of course, one of our messages is that uh, libertarians are the only political party that does not want to or will not profit by being involved in government. We'll get government more out of your lives. And that's a really important thing that people will appreciate. So that's what we're going to do. John, if we were even to win one state, it would be a positive revolution because oh, yeah. Libertarians have made a mistake for the last decades, and that is we've allowed other people to label us. And so what do they think when you put out a Rorschach test of libertarian? Oh, greed is good. You know, so they think, I mean, Ian Rand said greed is good, which is good for selling your novels. And what she meant by that, as you know, is you act in your own economic self-interest. And so it's everyone else, kind of like the I pencil essay. And good things will happen. You know, everybody will, will have a motive to, to produce, be successful, and that that generates more success. Or uh, we don't believe in any government at all, which is silly, you know, Article 1, Section 8, Constitution. Uh, they survival of the fittest. I've got mine to hell with you, sort of thing. That's just not true. But if we were to win one state, we'll show that we are, in effect, legitimate, which we are, and uh, it will make a lifelong difference. Plus, Larry Sharp and I have supported down-ballot candidates for a decade, and we will continue to do that. We'll help the people running for city council or the assembly or whatever that would be. We're going to spread this message. We're going to change the culture. We're going to make libertarianism accessible to the average American, and they will love it. Other than well, that, I like I the no feeling whatsoever. I, I like the strategy, picking a few states and not 
trying to run a national campaign. I think that's that's very smart. So I'm excited excited for that if, if you do get the nomination. Um, I do want to ask you about you said when I what when when you get the nomination. Ah, that, that's what I thought you said. Yes. <laughs> um, so to ask you about, I've seen people talking about you and Larry supporting a UBI. So I went out and looked for, for videos of it. I can't find it anywhere with you supporting UBI. What I did find is talking about as Milton Friedman Friedman adv- advocated for a negative income tax. So yeah. is is it accurate that you're that you're in favor of a negative income tax and not a UBI? Yeah. Or is that can can you just explain your stance on that? Yes. Uh, UBI is it's just not the right way to go. <clears throat> We're going to have taxes. I'm sorry, but we if you're going to buy fighter airplanes uh, and pay, and have fighter pilots, it costs money. The government's going to need to have some money, much, much less than they do now. We'll cut back lots of things, but, but yes. So what I would do, we have a couple of minutes. For example, I would put in a graduated flat tax, John, where no one in the country that Nobody in the country will pay any income tax on their first $30,000, for example. Then for every dollar you earn between thirty dollars and $100,000, you'll pay, for example, 10 cents to the government. I don't care how you spend your money. You don't have to fill out these burdensome tax returns, intrusive beyond belief tax returns. Mm-hmm. For every dollar you earn between one hundred and five hundred thousand, dollars and $500,000, you'll pay 15 cents of those dollars to the government. And if you earn more than $500,000 a year, of those dollars, you'll pay 20 cents to the government. End of discussion. But now this is where Milton Friedman comes in. What if you make no money at all? Well, the answer is, as Milton said, the difference between the poor and the non-poor is the poor don't have money, so give them some money and then treat them as adults. So they would be receiving a stipend as long as they're here as a citizen or with a green card. They would receive a stipend of $15,000 per year, probably broken into monthly payments of $1,250. Now, for every dollar, this is really important, for every dollar they earn between zero and $30,000, they would lose 50 cents of their stipend. So they always have an incentive to earn the extra dollar. So then you can see the cutoff point would be $30,000. They'll get no stipend. They'll pay no taxes. What about the homeless? Now, John, my philosophy is that I could be bleeding. It's probably yours, too. I could be bleeding on the street right here. And you would have no legal obligation to help me whatsoever unless you cause my injuries. That would be different. But we will because we want to, because we're compassionate people. So we would allow these people to have those monies, then do away with all other welfare. Hey, what a thought. Unless you have truly special needs, you know, if you're really mentally disabled, that's different. <clears throat> but otherwise, get rid of all this other bureaucracy, the food stamps, the fraud, the administration. All of that would be gone. <clears throat> the states would benefit. The people would benefit. What about the homeless? Well, I assure you, right now, what we see is politicians that feel guilty or politically under duress throw a large amount of money at something, and then they go off and sail off and do other good deeds. And the problem does not get better. But if you were homeless, or I were, we would have $1,250 automatically in an equivalent of an ATM account. The private sector would quickly come up with some fairly inexpensive room and board facility, maybe for, say, $1,100 a month or whatever, and that was automatically done. The private sector then would be able to address the problem, which is not happening now. It would be an institutional response. Milton Friedman called it a negative income tax. I don't like the word negative, so I call it a stipend. But yes, that's what it is. Milton Friedman was in favor of it. I'm on good, solid ground. Is it purist philosophically? Excuse me. I'm sorry. No, it's not. Maybe. Although it's practical, 
We're never going to do away with the income tax, but imagine the, the benefits that we would all get. Businesses wouldn't have to spend all this money, <clears throat> I'm sorry again, preparing their income tax. Can I have some of your water, please? But uh, preparing all those taxes, the intrusion of the federal government would be gone. I don't care how you spend your money. People are going to say, oh, no, no one will give any donations to charity. Of course they will. That's, that's an insult. So, so that's what I would do. It would resolve so many problems, be much more simplified and much more effective. I stand on it. Okay. So uh, thanks you, thank you for clearing that up because I was confused. Uh, I didn't see any, any UBI talk anywhere. Um, we have a couple minutes left. How about I just uh, give you the floor to plug your website where people can donate and, uh, and volunteer and all that stuff, and also any, uh, any closing statement that you have? Well, and certainly. It's, it's an honor to be able to speak for people. Uh, we have been endorsed, by the way, by some strong libertarians. Uh, as I say, uh, Mark Rutherford in Indiana, Jeff Hewitt, who is a libertarian supervisor in Riverside County here, has endorsed us. Um, Jim Turley in, in uh, Altamonte Springs in Florida. By the way, he's a, I guess they call him city councilor or, or uh, commissioner there, but that city has no debt. I mean, that's what libertarians accomplish. Uh, you probably know that Mark Whitney, who was a former candidate for the, the, the nomination, has now uh, dropped out of the race and has endorsed our campaign. So I'm really proud, but it gives quite an obligation for me to do my best to get this word out. Larry Sharp and I, once we get the nomination, we'll spend a whole lot of time in those five states or however many we go to. We, we take this seriously. It is an important time for the United States people. We are at a crossroads again because more and more government just is getting in the way. It's expensive. It's the federal government. You want to do something discouraging, John, or anyone watching or listening? Google the words, the plum book, plum like the fruit. And it's a federal document. It has, I looked at it yesterday, 212 pages, pages of lists of appointments that a president makes, half of which are confirmed by the Senate. And each one makes something in the order of $179,000, $189,000 a year plus benefits. You wonder why government's so expensive. No, we should cut those out. So what are we going to do with regard to that? <clears throat> to, one thing is the line item veto. We'll press for that so that a president, when he gets these all this pork in must-pass legislation, either has to sign it or not sign it. No, we'll be able to cross out some expenditures. And that's really important. We'll, we'll go over the heads of Congress if we have to get the people to be on board with that. And we will have sunset provisions for every federal agency. So every, I don't know, five years, each federal agency will be required to come to Congress publicly, probably on you know C-SPAN or something like that, saying, okay, Department of Commerce, what have you done for the last five years? What have you accomplished? What, how much money did you spend? Now, what are your goals for the next five years? How much money are you programming for that? And everyone will see once we start focusing a light on this, hey, that's duplicated. Hey, that's no longer necessary. Pair that back, reduce that, cut this down. There may be even federal agencies that are not going to be refunded and they will be done with. The Maybe Bureau some of federal Indian, layoffs. Oh my gosh. People. Oh, well, all right. You know, <laughs> they're the privileged class. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs is one that should no longer be in existence. I quote Henry Ford, by the way, not my favorite person socially, because he's probably anti-Semitic, but he said something everybody should understand, which is anyone that feels they can thrive by relying on the government should talk to the American Indian. It's really all you have to say. 
Because look what it's done for them for the last 240 some odd years. They're always the lowest socioeconomic group of, of all because the government, well, you can't take care of educating your children. The government will do it for you. You can't own your own home. Wait a minute. If you can't own your own home, you've been to, to Native American reservations. All of their homes are very plain, but you have no incentive to fix it, fix it up, paint it if you don't own it. Or you, if you want to start a company, you can't take out a mortgage on your home for the seed money like other people can. So it keeps them down. I care about you. So I want you to have an incentive. I want you to get on your feet. We'll give you some assistance in the meantime. We will have a safety net because we care about people. Now, just because you're alive does not mean you're entitled to anything. But maybe you'll even be appreciative. It's that sort of thing. I'm in the Peace Corps. I care about people. So do we also. I want you to thrive. And the best way you can thrive is to get an education, roll your sleeves up, get in there, be successful, and profit from your labors. Milton Friedman, again, no society has ever raised itself up out of poverty except through a system of free enterprise and private property rights. That's what I want again for America. That's what Gray Sharp 2020 will bring. Go to GraySharp2020.com. Join us, support us, and I promise you, if you do, or even if you don't, we will do you proud. That is our vow to you. All right. Judge Jim Gray, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Thanks for what you do as well, getting the word out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's show, another great episode of Felony Friday. As you know, Felony Friday is one of three shows we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we kick off every single week with our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest-running program, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, liberty, swearing, and just, just good fun. Check that out. You can get all three shows by subscribing for the great price of $0 per month. You get everything that we have here. So please check everything out. And uh, if you like it all, please think about, consider supporting what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. A great way to do that is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash Liberty. Another great way of doing that is by uh, following, liking, sharing our stuff on Facebook. Instagram or Twitter, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at Lions of Liberty. And the discussion forum where all the greatest and brightest minds go to to talk about politics, liberty, everything that's happening in the world today, current events, the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook, which you can find by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top of Facebook, clicking search, comes up say you want to join it answer a question bam you're in and the rest is just going to be a great journey for you so check that out that's all i have for today this is john odermatt signing off always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning <laughs>